Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced the signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, Forefront family. Welcome to another episode of the Forefront bi-weekly roundup. My name is Caroline, and I am here with my trusty co-host, Alex. Alex, how are you? Hello. I'm doing well. I know we, uh, we were struggling last week with content coming through, and we had the opposite problem this week. Back to the yeah. normal problem <laughs> of there being just so an overwhelming amount of stuff that we have to pick. Yes. Um, so... We have our short list here, but I think it might be worth even bringing up what you just mentioned, but we're, there's so much going on here and we can only cover so much in this podcast that we're trying to capture all of the other good stuff that's going on and talk mm-hmm. about it in different forums. Yes. Yes. I, I just told Alex before we began recording that the, the Forefront community, we have our weekly community calls, the tea times. We're revamping that. We want to bring fresh energy in. And I realized that Alex and I were, were very fortunate to be in this position where rhythmically we're diving into so much that's happening. We're synthesizing. We're having to condense it uh, to this one hour, one hour and a half podcast. But there's so much sawdust that comes out of that that just <laughs> never sees the light of day. And so we had this idea to, to introduce this new segment into the weekly Tea Times in the Forefront community that's called Gigadust. And that is me taking um, some of the spare issues, if you will, the spare topics, the events of the day that don't make it into the podcast and sharing it with the community. And I did that today and it was just, the, the reception of it was uh, was really, really great. And it just kind of reiterates for me, Alex, just how hungry so many of us are for curation. Curation beyond just, you know, click on this link and see a bunch of links with like, you know, a two or three sentence synopsis. I think we're super, super hungry for like deeply interpersonal curation. Um, so that, that today was a, today was definitely a demonstration of that. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, Web3 has the best names. If, if we get nothing out of it, I'm Gigadust. Yes. I mean, we get yes. that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. We do. But and com- speaking of, <laughs> yes, go ahead. Come for the names, stay for the content type of thing. <laughs> Uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. We have the best names. Uh, and <laughs> this is a great way to segue into our social tokens uh, segment. We're going to talk about tooling. I think we've, I think we perhaps skipped it the last time around, but uh, you know, the name is, I cannot deny the name and the name is water in music. I don't know if, I don't know if y'all are familiar with uh, this community, but they're absolutely amazing. Um, water in music is a paid newsletter and Research DAO that's building the innovator's guide to the music business. They are a Seed Club Accelerator alum, and you may have come across their inaugural collaborative research report. This was released in winter of 2021. It was created by over, I think, 50, 40, 50 community members, first of its kind, five-part syllabus, so juicy, going into the state of music and web three. They had market maps. They had calls to action for music industry stakeholders. Uh, Really, really a rich, rich resource for the community as a whole. Simultaneously with this drop of this mega research report, Alex, the community launched the Stream Token. And they described this as their 
research token designed to incentivize, reward, collaborative research, knowledge sharing in music and technology. So this was followed thereafter by Water and Music's season 1.5 report. So season 1.5 report. And this is a new set of modular resources for artists, founders, and innovators. And it included this new music NFT contract template. So this was released just earlier this month. And I want to want to highlight this for their very first NFT tooling segment. So what was the inspiration for this project? Very interesting. I'm pulling this content from the announcement piece that they published on Water & Music's website. And I'm quoting for this here, for our season one collaborative research project on defining music NFT ownership, we annotated and analyzed almost every publicly available off-chain music NFT-related legal contract. In doing so, we realized that a lot of contracts for music NFT projects that were otherwise seen as pushing the music and Web3 ecosystem forward were making fundamental errors about basic music law concepts, like the difference between sound recording and composition copyrights. These mistakes weren't always because of a lack of knowledge either. They often reflected a tension between old and new music industry practices and mindsets, Mm -hmm. especially regarding copyright law. I am so fascinated by this excerpt, Alex. I'm I'm absolutely loving this. (laughs) Love, 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 love. Um, So they continue to come on that out of this sort of pain point that they that they experienced. Uh, came their idea for the first ever modular music NFT contract template. So essentially, this modular template guides the user through a decision tree, through different paths based on their answers, and then at the end of the process, generates a custom PDF file that the person can then attach on or off-chain to their NFTs. And they also populated the tool with education points about music copyright and Web3 fundamentals. And their aim is to make it an evergreen resource for people looking to navigate the wild west of music and Web3 law. So who's the tool for? So three, three groups, at least as far as this community ideates it. So the first is, of course, artists and their teams. Uh, musicians considering how NFTs can become a part of the broader strategies for releasing and distributing music. And then, of course, entertainment lawyers who are receiving, fielding more and more inquiries uh, from clients about NFTs, uh, questions about how to navigate resources to make sense of this relationship among traditional contracts, smart contracts, on-chain ownership, And finally, music and Web3 developers, especially those who are less familiar with all the legal considerations around music. Mm -hmm. So they want this contract template, Alex, to help builders better understand the legal basis underlying the products and the platforms that they're creating, right? You you can imagine that it may feel like they're kind of stepping into a landmine uh, because (laughs) their design decisions, you know, they're going to impact artists. They're going to, they might give rise to legal issues that could become very problematic. So at the same time that this space is so emergent and exciting, I really love this project because they're saying we've experienced this pain point. We know there's bad information out there and we're going to kind of cut this off at the source uh, by by having sort of prototype music NFT contract templates, so I think it's I think it's simple. I think it's elegant. I think it's super super valuable. Uh, what are your thoughts, Alex? Oh, I mean, we hear about a lot of things where there's a Web three 
facade and then you have a web two package. And it sounds like mm-hmm. in those cases where it's not always from ignorance, where you might have some people taking advantage of, oh yeah, here's the shiny new thing, web three. And it turns out there's just a web three wrapper on it. So yes. in those cases, it'd be interesting to dig into those. Um, I, I'm, if, if you've seen anything from Cooper Troopa's tweets in like the last six months, you can tell that he is just yes. ultra bullish on music NFTs. And I think there's a, an awakening coming up here soon. And for any other industries where there's a very, very bloated middleman involved. Um, and music NFTs are one of the most notorious there where you have a lot of bands notoriously signing these contracts that are almost either knowingly or unknowingly just mm-hmm. not in their best interest because it's really the only route that they can go to leverage the the networks that these record labels have. And we talked a little bit about this with other with other um, uh, topics we've covered before with music entities and just how bloated that middle layer is. And I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of other revolutions in in other bloated middlemen uh, environments. So this this bringing a contract in that simplifies the complexity and <clears throat> arguably uh, purpose purposeful complexity so that it's very difficult to understand. And you really need someone who's a specialist in that to take advantage of those little loopholes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that being very similar to something like tax law that's seemingly very purposefully complicated so that you have specialists who can take advantage of it, um, specialists who basically get a job out of having that. And you basically create jobs in the music industry by having that complexity. And when you come into something like music and Web3, here are great examples of either intentionally or unintentionally, bringing in uh, Web 2 concepts to Web 3. And either intentionally or unintentionally, you're getting this Web 2 package with a Web 3 wrapper. So it's very, very difficult to think from a first principles standpoint on something like music because it is such an old industry. There's such deep roots. And there's a lot of um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of concepts that really need to be tested there and saying, are we doing this just because we've always done it this way? Or are we doing it for some actual good reason here? So there's probably going to be a lot of the stumbling <laughs> going on yeah. in this industry where people try or, or learn by doing and saying, like, Ooh, okay, this is actually a fundamental problem we didn't think about. We just kind of took it for granted. Let's fix this. Or, oh, great. We, this is really not much different. This is really not that much more revolutionary. Um, Maybe it's Web3 and name only. How can we think about this differently? And it mm-hmm. happens with all these different industries that are moving to Web3 where you get these kind of skeuomorphic um, adaptions into Web3 and you might even not get the full benefits of Web3 by making it skeuomorphic. It's, it's going to take some time, some experimentation to get these truly non-skeuomorphic uh, things that are kind of difficult to predict right now. So it's just a matter of A-B testing over time and seeing projects like this that are trying to simplify and break down some of those more traditional barriers that have really been extractive to bands historically. So one yeah. of the, it seems like they have their head on the, uh, on the right way here. And mm-hmm. the complexity of the middle layer and being contracts, I mean, this is one piece that can be simplified. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, entities like this end up becoming so specialized that different business units pop off and say, okay, mm-hmm. we solved the contract problem here. What are the other bloated middle layer web two traditional type of um, mm, things that need to be point. rethought? Yeah. And then they can yeah, be yeah. kind of a think tank for that. So mm-hmm. it, 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 we'll see how that kind of expands outside of what they do here, just depending on the, the success they see on the contract side. 
Yeah, that's that's an awesome. That's that's a very very good point. I'm I'm quite familiar with how the legal system uh, unfolds and evolves, and it's it's so entrenched in in the old ways that you almost need. I, I love what they're doing here. Is they're really? I I don't know if they actually have any uh, in house. If Water and Music have any sort of in house uh, community members that have legal expertise, but mm-hmm. I think they're going about it in, in just the right way. They're not going out to like existing lawyers and saying, "Okay, what, to tell us what you think about the tra- the trajectory of music law, and we can tell you what uh, NFTs are all about." Like you said, they're innovating. They're innovating in house, and I think this is really mm-hmm. going to be a mm-hmm. valuable, valuable way for them to build up like a skill set that's going to make them uh, quite distinctive in the market uh, for well, for the sort of value that they can bring. I haven't. I, I'm not deeply involved in law in any way, shape, or form. But one thing that surprised me in my limited experience in that realm was going to these conferences and just seeing how many lawyers who had their own practice who retired and are going full time in Web three. Wow. Because I think they're starting to see wow. that there are these opportunities. You think smart contract, it's basically a normal contract, a law contract that's baked in code. And if you can bring in expertise from the traditional world and come in and say, how can we design smart contract in a certain way? I mean, you can become a specialist in Web3 and um, whether you're aiming for it or not, make a lot of money, and make a big impact in this space. So I, mm-hmm. I think lawyers are starting to catch on to that where... Mm-hmm. You're coming in with this expertise in law and you're saying like, how can we transition some of this to code and how can we rethink some of the paradigms here? So it's a little niche. And if you're in the law space, I mean, oh, yes. something to think about because there's a big <laughs> yes. opportunity there. The people who are building Web3 do not want to dive deep into contract language. It is very, very painful for people who just want to build a product. So there is an absolute need for people who, one, come from that oh, world yeah. and understand language, understand what are the pitfalls, what are the typical things to look out for. And then maybe if you're coming from a specific industry, what are these, what's the status quo? And what opinions do you have on what's working with status quo and what's really, really needs to change? And that's mm-hmm. just not going to be obvious to people who don't understand the, the deep legal aspects of these different industries. Huge, mm-hmm. huge opportunity for lawyers coming in to the Web3 space. Huge. Accountants, huge. lawyers, are you listening? Yeah. You, <laughs> yes, I mean, that there, too. There is such a huge opportunity right now. But yes, l- let us not digress, Alex. I know you have an amazing uh, new project, a uh, social tokens project to tell us about. Yes. Yes. So March Madness is in full swing. Um, so for the, the sports fans out there, that'll become immediately obvious what that is. But for those not familiar, March Madness is referring to an NCAA basketball tournament that goes on every year, um, not, not surprisingly, in March. Um, starts in early to middle March and goes through about middle of April. And it's just this massive, massive tournament that goes on. And I think there's 64 teams that come into the tournament. And it's basically a single elimination round tournament where every, uh, it's, it's mainly for D1, but all these schools coming through get, get ranked and there's top 64 teams end up going in the single elimination tournament. So super high stakes, super popular. Um, and there's a lot of fan involvement, whether it's just emotional involvement or betting and things like that. Tons of, it's just like a huge, huge market here. Mm-hmm. So I actually met someone who um, is creating a new tool here called Signing Day and building a DAO around this. So what is Signing Day? What they're trying to do here And I'll actually take another step back here because there's a little bit of history on why this is so important right now. So for the longest time, the NCAA was not allowing players to make any money 
off of their name image likeness. Basically, they couldn't get paid anything because mm-hmm. they, they would basically get kicked off the team. They would get banned. Um, and very recently, they lifted that restriction. So the NCAA isn't controlling any kind of revenue streams for the players, but what they've just allowed to, is saying, hey, players are now allowed to make money. But it's kind of mm-hmm. on them to structure that business and say, how could you make money? So you have players now sponsor, getting sponsored, doing deals, typical deals that you would see from the NBA, like getting sponsored from a Nike and Adidas, or doing commercials, things like that, where they can now actually earn money for their name, image, and likeness, which was previously not possible. The problem that's happening right now is even though the NCAA is raking in money for this tournament, there, there, there is not, there's pretty much none of that money getting down mm-hmm. to the players. Again, mm-hmm. the NCAA is not creating any actual revenue streams for the players. It's kind of on their mm-hmm. own. And there's this new tool coming out, and I, I met one of the founders here. Uh, it goes by Web, and it's called Signing Day. And the whole idea here is to use Web3 technologies to create a revenue stream for these players and a direct one-to-one relationship between fans and the players. So in a timely manner, they release right at the start of March Madness. And this is just focused on um, the men's and women's tournaments for March Madness Mm. to get involved. So I'll go through Mm. a little bit on how this works. So right on March 15th, so we're a little bit after that, and especially after when this is going to get released, um, any fan is able to sponsor directly any men's or women's college basketball player who makes the tournament. And an equal number of sponsorship NFTs will be available per athlete with more release each weekend after the tournament. So the idea is there's a limited amount of NFTs. And for a specific athlete that you might be interested in, you can say, I want to purchase one of those NFTs. And for instance, the mint price could be like 0.04 ETH. And you say, I want to mint one of these 250 NFTs. Great. Now what happens after the tournament is players can get access to this and see, hey, looks like a bunch of fans bought these many NFTs. Do you want to sign up for um, for signing day? So starting April 13th, once the mm-hmm. tournament ends, sponsored, sponsored athletes who want to participate in signing day will begin the process to claim their sponsorship funds, including identity verification and signature collection. So what will end up happening is when they sign up, they will um, basically do a digital signature and that signature will be stamped on the NFT. So now you, basically what's happening is they are starting with this demand platform and saying, hey, fans, you have the ability to basically signal demand for something like this. Mm-hmm. And now you invite the athletes after the tournament to say, hey, look, a bunch of fans were interested in this specific thing. Do you want to actually capitalize on this? And there's, um, there's one particular athlete who's kind of a meme right now uh, called Doug Eddert, who is on the St. Peter's basketball team, which is, again, if you haven't been following this kind of low seeded team that's making this crazy run in the tournament mm-hmm. right now and beating all of these high ranking teams. Oh, wow. And this, this happens frequently where there's these mm-hmm, low ranked mm-hmm. teams and they go mm-hmm. on these absolute tears and there's all of this publicity. You, you can bet the coaches, the athletic st- staff are getting called about all these multi-million dollar contracts. You have um, hmm. all of this money basically flowing and publicity flowing to these teams. And yet none of that is coming back to the players who are actually doing the work and making progress and you know c- progressing in the tournament. So uh, this is the solution to this. So it, the the potential pitfall here is that you have a bunch of people signing up for certain athletes NFTs, mm-hmm. and then the athletes don't end up claiming those. And in mm-hmm. those cases, the the uh, person who just 
minted one of those NFTs has the option to donate. Um, and what will happen is all the athletes who do sign on signing day will, will basically vote with their own NFTs and say, which charities do we want to donate to? And then the person who holds that NFT can say, okay, great. Yeah, I want to donate my funds to that charity. Or they can get their money back, basically. Um, this is all built on Ethereum. It's all ERC-20 tokens. So, you know, gas can be an issue there. Mm-hmm. But the idea here, it, what I love about this is you're basically creating a platform that's signaling interest to athletes. And then, then uh, signing day can go back to those athletes and say, hey, look, you have uh, 0.5 ETH or 1 ETH or whatever amount of ETH sitting waiting for you from your mm-hmm. fans who have minted these NFTs. Do you want to claim this? Do you want to be part of the platform? And that is a perfect way to get someone enticed is being like, hey, a couple grand's waiting for you. Are you interested? It's like, well, hell yes, hopefully. Um, and not all of these athletes are going to be interested in coming in and claiming, but it's a great starting point. It's a great marketing idea to get people interested where you lead with the fans' interest, you signal that interest to the athletes, and then it should be a no-brainer for the athletes to come in and, and join the platform. Now, the, the general idea here is that it's, it's really up to the athletes to... to explore what that relationship looks like with your NFT holders. There could be something where the athletes say, hey, for my NFT holders, I'm holding this special event and ask mm-hmm. me anything. A, um, you know, I'm getting tickets for all of my different fans who are holding these NFTs, whatever. So it's really up to the athletes to create a business around it, aside from the direct donations that their fans are giving to them. And the, the value to the fans is basically they're saying, I'm, I'm holding a vested interest in this athlete and signaling to other people that I've been one of the early adopters of these people. And you have mm-hmm. someone like this Doug Ebert, who's kind of becoming a meme here. I could definitely see just seeing the, the, the memetics of, uh, of crypto, of Web3, of people just flooding in and, and seeing interest in this. And it's just a matter of letting people know that this thing exists. So um, naturally, they're partnered with... Um, I, w- I wouldn't say partnered, but they've, they've kind of gotten mentored by the Kraushaus team, which Caroline and I both know, the really, really good people over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the other piece here is how well can they create this DAO-to-DAO relationship and not just be this, this siloed thing, but create an ecosystem of different sports DAOs and become stronger in that network. And they've definitely done a really, really good job so far of creating those partnerships. But we'll see where this goes. Um, one of those things where they're saying they're putting a signal out there and we'll see if more athletes bite. Very cool. Do you, I know that you follow college uh, b-ball more so because I remember we were, we were speaking about how you, you don't so much watch uh, professional NBA, but more college. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what is the reasoning? Like I'm, I'm imagining that the reasoning why it was banned, why college players could not make money off of their name and image and likeness is because they wanted focus, right? They wanted, yeah. they, they wanted the players to focus on school, on college, to focus on playing and to not focus on getting an agent and making a shit ton of money and endorsements yep. with Nike. And so what was the rationale behind lifting this band? Was <laughs> it just that the, just like the optics just could not be ignored anymore about how these... Yeah. The, the, okay. Okay. I mean, it's the, the original idea was similar to what we're hearing in Congress with quote unquote, protecting people against Web3, which is we're trying mm-hmm. to protect them from all these scams, all these, you know, mm-hmm, 0.01% of the, of the instances type of things. And what they're mm-hmm. really doing is protecting their own interests. Mm-hmm. And it's that facade of, oh, we're protecting the athletes. That is definitely it. And it, it just comes from pressure where people are like, okay, so this is a hugely famous person. 
Um, you, you also have pressures where you have an, an athlete, let's take Zion Williamson, for example, who was just an absolute phenom in college and someone like him before this, uh, before this lifted, he can make zero money, uh, by playing all through college. And mm-hmm. now he kind of has this pressure to say, well, I'm going to get drafted early, even if that night might not be better in the long run, because I am sitting on multi-million dollar contracts based on the way I'm playing right now. Therefore, I'm going to leave school early. I'm going to take mm-hmm. this risk of going into the NBA early. And you've seen all these stories. This happens in basketball. This happens in baseball. happens in every sport where people, where kids leave college ball too soon. They get in the big leagues. They're not either physically or mentally prepared yeah. to be in the big leagues. And then they get yeah. washed out. And now they have no degree. And they, ha- they spent one, two, three years in the majors. Um, and they're, they're washed out and they're out of there. And that's not a good incentive structure. So there's, in my opinion, it's much, much better to allow, to, to allow athletes. I mean, they're student athletes. Yes. But the thing is they're, they're harnessing all of their success here. They should be able to capitalize on it. It doesn't make any sense for this overarching board to say, you can't make money on this. We're protecting you from this. It's way too paternalistic. And now it's incentivizing students to stay in school because you can run out that popularity and you can be in your element there. You can develop physically, you can develop mentally and still have a revenue stream and not take that, um, that seemingly low hanging fruit by getting drafted early and potentially burning out because you're not ready. And now you don't even have a degree. So I think it's better in the long run. And it's one of those things that again, social pressure came through and NCAA caved and Mm. they did the absolute minimum. (laughs) They're not creating those revenue streams and something like signing day comes through and says, great, well, now that we're allowed, we're going to take it into our own hands, into the community's hands who want to help athletes actually monetize their success here. This is one of Mm -hmm. many revenue streams they can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be something if you actually uh, structured uh, the NCAA college ball uh, as, you know, a Web3, as a sort of decentralized, community-owned and operated venture? So you have like, you have the cohort of the college students coming in, they're playing ball for like three, four seasons or whatever, and the revenue that the um, the university is making, it's being routed to the players because they're co-creators in this venture. Obviously, mm-hmm. the venture could not exist without them. And maybe say you have the money that's it's kept in a trust, right? If they're that concerned about you know players becoming huge ballers and being distracted, you could still have this revenue being routed to the the individual players and be kept in a trust and be released to them upon graduation. I mean, that would change lives. Um, yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, I can see why it's a big ask for the NCAA. Yeah. But. I mean, it would change <laughs> lives, but there you have another example of a traditional organization that's fighting against the urges of, well, yes. let's keep as much as we can to ourselves. And yes. what incentive do yes. they have to revamp other than people saying you're going to become obsolete? Oh and, my and that's, goodness. it was a step in the right direction with that pressure. But um, yes. this is happening with the NBA now where they were a, a nice early adopter with Web3 te- technologies, with NBA Top Shots, but it's it, that was kind of a very, very incremental um, introduction. There's some radical changes that they could do to really set themselves up for the future. Same thing with NCAA. But you have to think about what incentives do they have here because there's a lot of those pressures. There's a lot of the um, heuristics from the traditional world where they're like, we want to maintain control. We want to keep as much of this revenue for ourselves. And unless they're seeing a systemic risk to their existence, um, I'm not sure we'll see a whole lot of major, major changes. You might see a lot more of this 
facade of change where it's like, hey, here's Web3, and then you undo the wrapper, and it's like, oh, great, it's Web2 and a Web3 wrapper. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm ignorant of this, but in order to get drafted into the NBA, do you have to have gone... Um, is it possible to get drafted into the NBA like directly from high school, for instance? Yeah. I mean, that's what happened to LeBron James. And okay. luckily that worked out for him. But man, getting drafted at 18, <laughs> that is a wow. risk. What if you injure yourself right in the beginning and then all yeah, these yeah, stories yeah. come out like, eh, was this guy just all hype, blah, 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 blah. But yeah. luckily it worked out for him. But for every LeBron James, there's 100 kids who go through the same thing and see the opposite result. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally see that. And, and just another question, because I find this to be so, um, it, you spoke with, you jammed with the, one of the co-founders. Did y'all have a conversation at all about that sort of the, the warning or the sort of red flag that's been flown around Top Shot, NBA Top Shot, where the rationale is that, you know, sure, you have like the LeBron Jane Top Shots and, and, and these sort of NFT mementos, but the fact of the matter is that this is sort of an infinite supply. There's, there's after LeBron yeah. retires, there, there's going to be another LeBron and then another LeBron and then another Kobe. And so NCAA college ball is the same dynamic. Um, were, were they at all concerned about that? I mean, you, you have, like you said, this innovation in the fans signaling demand. And I think that's mm-hmm. really, really cool. But was there any sort of conversa- conversation or awareness on their part that they were kind of up against the same sort of challenge that ultimately even the NBA has to deal with, which mm-hmm. is just like this inflationary constant uh, um, expanding supply? We didn't directly talk about that. But my opinion on this is... It's, it's similar to, this is just nothing that any of our generations really, really dealt with, but baseball cards were huge, huge in, I think all the way up to really the eighties, maybe nineties, but really big in like the, the, the -hmm, the glory days mm -hmm. of baseball. Mm -hmm. And it's like that where you're, you're, (laughs) you're going to have these amazing players, but they're rare. They're rare. And especially Mm -hmm. if you can make a bet early on in college Maybe that's something where people are like, I really believe in this person. I want to signal my interests. And then maybe it turns out they're the next Babe Ruth, the next Shohei Otani, they're the next whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's just something in our brains where we want, it's, people are just so fanatic about sports. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the same level of fanaticism that people have for yeah. their pets. It's just almost irrational. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And they're just going to say, I want to place a bet here. I want to get so involved emotionally and now um, financially. And if the, if the purchase price there isn't just absolutely ludicrous, which we've seen with some NFT projects and prohibitive, um, it's something where everyone can participate and it's fun. And it's not even like a, Hey, this is, I'm purchasing this for an investment. It's more of like, Holy shit. And I have an autograph from Doug Eater uh, and something like that. Uh, and maybe that ends up becoming valuable later on. Like I can imagine if you have a LeBron's James, LeBron James, uh, um, signature or like a mm-hmm. autograph or like a Michael Jordan autograph from the high school days or in the college days, it's going to be super, super valuable. So there's lots of different incentives and motivations for wanting to go after this, but it's just one of those things where if you provide a platform for sports fanatics to just signal their interests and signal their clout, they're going to take it. And if it's well-designed, it's going to be something that can last well after your involvement, which should be the goal for all these different kind of Web3 projects. Makes sense, Alex. So this takes us into the, uh, well, we've spoken about the first signing day new project. We very often decide not to double up, but we could not help but double up this month with the new NFT projects because 
we need to talk about the board apes. We need to talk about <laughs> Yuga Labs. They, this is the month of Yuga Labs. This is the BAYC month and it's not, it's only half over. So we, we have so many things to go into, but Alex and I thought, you know what, we, we have to make, we have to make space on the pod to talk about what is going on with this phenomenal uh, mm-hmm. project, uh, because this is, this could be, uh, they're truly trend setting, uh, say what you will about them. But um, this, this is a project that is truly, truly trend setting. And there was breaking news that was just published a few hours ago that we will share with you. Of course, by the time the pod is published, many of y'all will be familiar with what we're hinting at, but I decided to jump into it. So the very first piece of news, which I, I think is just interesting because I, I always have interesting jam uh, conversations with folks about uh, pseudonymity in the space. I don't know if you know this, but back in February, Alex, um, the all the founders of BAYC, they've, they've been pseudonymous, but back in February, BuzzFeed actually published a piece and reveal the identity of two of the founders. Um, so I want to go into this just real quickly because I found it to be interesting. But the reporter uh, searched public business records and eventually discovered the identities of two of the core founders who go mm. by the pseudonyms Gordon Goner and Gargamel. Excellent pseudonyms. And uh, the excerpt- <laughs> Best names, this, Web3. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The excerpts from this piece. Um, As the value of the asset they produce has skyrocketed, the identities of BAYC's founders have become the subject of intense interest, not all of it, positive. People have pointed out that apes in streetwear-inspired outfits and gold teeth is a racist trope. Representatives for Yuga Labs have vigorously denied this. Others have expressed concern that Seneca, the young Asian-American artist who actually drew the main artwork, has been under-acknowledged and undercompensated for her work. Nicole Muniz, the public-facing CEO of Yuga Labs, told BuzzFeed News, quote, every single artist of the original five were compensated over a million dollars each, which quite frankly, Alex is looking like peanuts now. Um, <laughs> I but I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if that artist, probably not, but I think going forward, artists should be asking for a percentage of royalties on top of any sort of yeah, flat fee. Yeah. Uh, but anywho, I, I continue, I continue on with this BuzzFeed piece, uh, quote, there reveals, this reveals a unique problem with the idea of a billion dollar company run by unknown people. How do you hold them accountable if you don't know who they are? Well, says Gary Coleman, director of the U.S. Office of the Advocacy Group, Transparency International. It should not be difficult to know who you're dealing with. This is a pretty basic thing. Without transparency and openness, then everyday people can't do the due diligence that major corporations are doing. And this can create problems. And there's just no reason for it. So that's the one hand. Here's the other hand, the upside to pseudonymity. Uh, And again, I'm quoting, it's possible that pseudonymous companies could become our new reality. Suna Amaz, a partner at crypto-focused venture capital firm Vault Capital, believes there might be some benefit in that. Unlike the traditional startup world, it frees founders from judgments of their physical appearance, where they went to school, and their social class, gender, or race. Quote, She says it will meaningfully open up opportunities for people who otherwise have the odds against them because they didn't come from the right school, the right corporations, or because they live in a place where unstealthing yourself could mean becoming a target, end quote. And of course, I see, I definitely see the the valid ideas on, on both sides of this. But as you can imagine, Alex, after this BuzzFeed article came out, there was a backlash. Many critical voices on crypto Twitter accusing the outlet of doxing. 
the, the founders. And the counter to these accusations I found quite interesting. It kind of shows that for me, a sort of clash in worldviews. You have the naysayers in, on crypto. They're speaking of this as an outright violation of privacy. And then you have folks from the more traditional world of journalism who are saying, you know, why are you getting all worked up? This is par for the course. Journalists shouldn't be beholden to special quote unquote crypto rules about what is and isn't subject to investigation and publication. So for instance, some people were countering that the crypto Twitter criticism, uh, they, they were just pointing out that the journalist had dug through corporate records. All of this is like Delaware and corporation papers. These are documents that are available to anyone on the internet. Uh, and they they didn't see how this could fit the traditional definition of doxing. Uh, Gabe Rivera, who is a founder of the popular Silicon Valley site TechMeme, uh, he also described the BuzzFeed piece as a standard business journalism. He asked why only a handful of insiders should get to know who is behind a company that is worth billions of dollars. This was his tweet right here, Alex. Uh, folks are calling this doxing, but it's ultimately standard business reporting, calling it illegitimate implicitly asserts that only certain wealthy connected people should continue to know the identities behind folks orchestrating billions in transactions. So again, I just wanted to highlight that controversy. Uh, I can definitely see the valid arguments on both sides. Yeah. Uh, interested to see how that will pan out, Alex. But now moving on from identity to what Yuga Labs has actually been up to. And my goodness, they've been up to a lot, a lot, a lot. Alex, I think I once saw, recently saw you made an analogy. You tweeted an analogy about like dog years and crypto, didn't you? You were talking <laughs> about like the passage of time. Wait, wasn't that you yes. or no? Okay. Yes. That was, yes. So like okay. one year in um in crypto is like seven years in the real world. It just it, moves okay. so fast. It's <laughs> so fast. Okay. So the velocity of moves making here on Yuga Labs is like jaw droppingly fast. So just a few weeks ago, Yuga Labs made this huge move to consolidate the NFT market. They bought up the IP of CryptoPunks and MeBits from Larva Labs. So these are the these are huge, huge NFT projects. And this is from the Larva Labs announcement. They're announcing this here. Quote, our specialty has always been the creation of things early in the life of a technology. So as this category of PFP projects grew into an industry in itself, we found ourselves less and less suited to the operation of these projects. Our personalities and skill sets aren't well suited to community management, public relations, the day-to-day -day management that these kinds of projects require and deserve. It became clear to us that what would be best for the CryptoPunks and MeBits would be for Yuga Labs to take over operations and guide them in this new and much larger world. With this in mind, we're announcing today that Yuga has acquired the IP of both CryptoPunks and MeBits, along with the majority of the developer-owned Punks and MeBits, and their first action in acquiring this IP will be to grant commercial rights to the community." End quote. Interesting in this piece, Alex, I, I found I found it was quite um, funny in a way to hear Larva Labs speak about the operational preeminence of Yuga Labs. I mean, they're saying in this quote, uh, we saw in them the skill set, the expertise in this space that we're missing. Yuga is the innovator of the model for the modern PFP project. They're the best people in the world at operating and growing these projects and communities around them. I don't know, Alex, it seems to me like the light in which they're speaking of Yuga Labs is similar to someone like speaking of like an apple, like a blue chip that's proven itself, mm -hmm. risen to the top over the years. 
over many years. And we literally have to remind ourselves, Alex, that Yuka Labs was just founded in 2021. This was like a year ago. Um, so it, it, no, it's, it's really the, it, it's, oh, it's mind blowing. It truly is mind blowing. So hot off the press, at least for us, as we're speaking to you, for you, Forefront family, uh, by the time you hear this, this may be old news, given how quickly time runs. But yeah. hot off the press just a few hours ago, news broke that Yuga Labs raised $450 million, four, five, zero million at a $4 billion valuation. The funding marks its seed round, making it among <laughs> the biggest ever valuations oh, for a seed round investment. Hell of a give me round. a minute. Wow. Yeah, give me a minute. Let's pick up our jaws from the floor. Wow. Okay, so this is from a write-up in The Verge. So the team behind Board It Yacht Club plans to use this moolah to build a media empire around NFTs, starting with games and its own metaverse project. The team describes its metaverse project called Other Side as a massively multiplayer online role-playing role game meant to connect the broader NFT universe. They hope to create an interoperable world that is gamified and completely decentralized, says the now-identified Wiley Arano, a co-founder of the BAYC. We think the real Ready Player One experience will be player run. Mm. This announcement comes just weeks after, of course, Yuga Labs consolidated the NFT space, buying CryptoPunks, MeBits, as I just shared. The company also launched a cryptocurrency, ApeCoin, and they are now partnering with a few different game studios to bring other side to life. The game won't be limited to just board ape holders. They plan to create development tools to allow NFTs from other projects to work inside their world. And then I have to quote this paragraph because, again, where are you going to find profit margins like this, Alex? The answer is nowhere. So Yuga Labs has been financially successful to date, elite pitch deck indicates that the company made nearly $140 million last year, primarily by taking a cut of the transactions tied to its NFT brands with an astounding 95% profit margin. 95%. <laughs> Insane. No so overhead. Yeah. Oh my God, I know. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that everyone's tripping over themselves to get in on the seed round? So let's talk about ApeCoin. Let's talk about ApeCoin and the ApeCoin DAO. This tweet announcement came out March 16th, 2022, introducing ApeCoin, a token for culture, gaming, and commerce used to empower a decentralized community building at the forefront of Web3. So what's the tagline? I'm pulling this from the ApeCoin website, which I recommend you visit. I was talking to Alex about this the other day, reading through it. You can see that this is a very, very professional, competent, capable, polished team that is behind this. So the tagline here is ApeCoin is for the Web3 economy. Culture has found new expression in Web3 through art, gaming, entertainment, and events. The possibilities for blockchain's impact on culture are so endless that they can't possibly all be predicted yet. Ape is a token made to support what's next controlled and built on by the community. So what are the aims of the Ape Coin protocol? Four, governance, unification of spend, access, and incentivization. So governance, ApeCoin is the ecosystem's governance token, allowing ApeCoin holders to participate in the ApeCoin DAO. Then there's unification of spend. ApeCoin is going to be the utility token, 
giving all of its participants a shared and open currency that can be used without centralized intermediaries access. ApeCoin provides access to certain parts of the ecosystem that are otherwise unavailable, such as exclusive games, merch, events, and services. And finally, incentivization. ApeCoin is going to be a tool for third-party developers to participate in this ecosystem by incorporating Ape into services, games, and other projects. So what does the token allocation look like? It is permanently fixed at 1 billion tokens. No minting, no burning. Token supply will never increase or decrease. The org structure. Now we get into some meaty things, especially for the DAO wonks out there. So the org structure consists of the Ape Foundation. Then there's the ApeCoin DAO, and then there's the board. So the Ape Foundation is described as the steward of ApeCoin, not the overseer. The foundation is going to facilitate decentralized and community-led governance and is designed to be progressively decentralized. It's tasked with administering the decisions of the ApeCoin DAO. It's going to be doing the day-to-day admin, the bookkeeping, the project management, and other tasks that ensure the DAO community's ideas have the support they need to become a reality. And I think this is super important. And Alex will will jam on this hopefully in a couple minutes. But to speak a little bit more about the relationship between the DAO and the foundation, uh, and I think this is a very important point, the ApeCoin website says that a DAO is the best way to give every member of the community a vote on important decisions. But the reality is that today, a DAO cannot sign a lease, cannot hire people, cannot make merchandise, or whatever the community decides to do on its own. So the foundation is going to close that gap. So the ApeCoin DAO, that's the second component of the org structure. This is the decentralized governance. And they say that this is critical to building and managing a globally dispersed community, critical to the success of the Ape ecosystem. And they have come up with something called the Ape Improvement Proposal Process, based, of course, on Ethereum's EIP system, that will allow ApeCoin DAO members to make decisions regarding everything from ecosystem fund allocations, brand partnerships, projects, governance rules, and the ApeCoin DAO membership is open to all ApeCoin holders. So FYI, there was an airdrop of ApeCoin to all holders of, you know, BAYC, the mutant apes, uh, the kennel dogs. um, And of course, it's also, uh, you can also buy it. I think the moment that it was announced, it was available on on, uh, Coinbase. Uh, So the third part of the component of the org structure is the board. So they describe this as the DAO's board or special counsel. This board has oversight of the foundation administrators. So if you remember, we had the foundation, we have the DAO proper, and now we have the board, which is going to have oversight of the foundation administrators. I couldn't find any information about who these administrators are, how they're appointed. But anyway, the purpose of the board is to administer the DAO proposals and serve the vision of the community. So it meets on proposals that require this administrative view. And a very good point here is that the initial board has a time limit uh, in terms of service. They serve a term of six months, after which DAO members can vote annually on the next cohort of board members. So that's that's really good. So the current members of the board, Alex, are Alexis Ohanian of, Red, of Reddit, Amy Wu of FTX, Yatsui of Animoca Brands, Dean Steinbeck of Horizon Labs. So these are really big players. Mm-hmm. Again, this mm-hmm. is a very professional uh, board or special counsel. So want to get into a little bit of governance because I think, again, I was, I was quite impressed reading 
reading the copy, reading the descriptions, uh, it clearly, this is not, I think it gives, it gives off a sort of quality that's quite distinct from other DAO comms or messaging that I've seen. Very professional, very robust, very thought out. So the guidelines here, as you might expect, most of this is just common sense, but you, you can, any, any holder of ApeCoin can submit a proposal, but they are quite detailed about what these proposals have to include. So they have to include such elements as an abstract, uh, a motivation purpose, a rationale. You have to define your key terms. You have to have specifications, a detailed breakdown of platforms and technologies that you want to use. You have to have the steps that you need to implement the proposal, the cost, the people power, the resources. You have to have a timeline, relevant uh, uh, milestones, completion dates. And it says very clearly here that the total cost of implementation must be clear in order for a proposal to go to vote. This is very strongly emphasized. Yeah. So there's there's kind of three layers of voting or curation here from what I could gather, Alex, looking at this, this website. There's the moderators um, who do a first pass, a first and a second pass, actually. They do two passes on proposals. And then if it gets through the moderation phase, then it goes to the board or for administrative review. And then after that, if it passes, then it goes to the DAO vote itself. Uh, another interesting feature of the governance process is something called the AIP, the Ape Improvement Process Analysis Report, Alex. So this AIP draft, um, any, any sort of AIP proposal draft will be reviewed by a project management team. So this is, this. I think this is huge. I think this is a very, I know it's huge. It's very wise, but it's like, whoa. Yes. So it's, it's going to be a project management team engaged by the Ape Foundation. They will provide this AIP analysis report to ensure costs, steps to implement legal considerations, third-party review requirements, potential conflicts of interest, and any further implications have been identified. Like, ooh, take a breath there. So <laughs> given that AIP authors may be submitting drafts with little to no resources, they say the service for the DAO community ensures that DAO members have enough information about proposals to make informed decisions when voting. So, Alex, this proposal process is a lot. It's a very rigorous layer of curation. Um, and I would say, especially for projects that have like a technical dimension, right? In order to reach yeah, like yeah. a reasonably thorough determination of cost, scope, et cetera, the proposal champion has to have specific expertise or access to this expertise. And this is not a low bar. And I can say we've definitely had challenges with this, with the forefront mm -hmm. governance process, Alex. From the perspective of the DAO, all this information that the ApeCoin protocol is specifying is vital information that we need to know about how to evaluate an idea as feasible or desirable. But the, 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 the nut that's really hard to crack, Alex, that this vital information is often something that can be arrived at only with the significant investment of upfront, significant investment of resources of time, expertise, and money, which obviously the, the champion of the proposal just may not have. You know, we had an off-season, Alex took part, during which we, we took the community through a progressive series of workshops that culminated in a pitching session and there is the contingency of the ideas arising for which the sponsors do not have the needed expertise to even submit a complete proposal. So I can see the need for this deeply curated process, but it can also yeah. work against the spirit of community-led decentralization. So given ApeCoin DAO's tremendous resources now, I, what I would want to see is a special function stood up 
whose sole mission is to assist community members with writing out these detailed proposals from A to Z. And it seems like the project management team, it seems like the AIP analysis reports are meant to address just this need. So I'm I'm happy to see that. And I would just kind of raise this larger philosophical point here, Alex, and, and give the mic over to you to see what you're thinking about all of this. But I like that they're calling out the importance of decentralization and maybe just for like messaging purposes, they're really driving that home. But I also see in the layout, the, the architecture that they've created is that they're they're planning very intentionally for the polar complement of decentralization, right? I, I think this is, we need a much needed dose of reality. We talk in Web3 about community-led X, Y, and Z, yet you know what i think what i think the foundation board and dao structure this three part structure is pointing to is the practical reality both within and without web3 and dao's is that you know often you have the division of labor you know great ideas yeah. can often be divorced completely divorced from any capability to execute on that great idea so when i think about bayc or i think about nfts in particular what makes these the this you know, a very powerful, potentially revolutionary technology is that it combines storytelling, collectibles, art, membership, identity. And then we get this added incentive, like, oh, we can finally share in the upside of the projects that we love. But there is now in relatively short order with the breakthrough of the NFT market, it's, it's, there's a huge saturation problem. You know, very few NFT projects now are minting and then selling out. So if we put on our investor hats, Alex, we, in order for us to really feel like we could truly share in any meaningful upside, we have to realize now that a project that wants to stand out and deliver in this highly saturated market, and I'm speaking about the market in general, I'm speaking about NFTs having to go head to head with like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's clearly what BAYC wants to do. They don't want to do anything less than that with the, the, yeah. this vision and the funds. But clearly, these projects are going to have to deliver in a way that is competent, professional, highly technically accomplished. This is the existing market reality. So for DAOs, for, for NFT projects that really want to empower fandom, I think perhaps the most fruitful org architecture is one in which the community is actively invited financially supported in contributing ideas, just ideas, so that there is a purity uh, around this. There's a sort of firewalled, mm. intentional vessel for ideas that proceed from the fans' love and from the fans' imagination, has nothing to do with practicality, feasibility, these, I think, being the most powerful ideas. And I'm thinking here in particular about Matthew Ball's amazing essay on Disney IP and returns to marginal affinity. Mm. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. But this is the power of love and imagination. And apart from this firewalled vessel where you're incentivizing and empowering the community to come forward with ideas, there is this centralized, professionalized function that then helps to fill the execution gap so that this NFT project has the best chance to really produce that upside for the community. Um, so that's that's kind of what I was thinking about when digging into like all the juicy details of this governance. What do you think, Alex? Whew, so much. Um, I, I think since we're just on the, the topic of governance here, the, the way you were describing the, the level of detail, whether you agree with it or not, mm -hmm. and the way governance is structured, get me got me thinking of how antithetical that was to the way Juno governance was run. And we were just talking about this before. Yes. Great example of sawdust 
that comes out of our discussions. <laughs> we just do not have time on these calls. So we're, we're turning it into giga dust on the, on the tea times. But there, the, um, Caroline did a deeper dive on that during one of our tea times. But to give the TLDR with the, the Juno situation is, long story short, there was a, uh, an address that was deemed to have gamed the fair drop of the token of Juno. And then there was a proposal to basically say, let's seize all the assets from this person because they, whether intentionally or not, um, did, did not abide by the rules of the airdrop and wrongfully took all of these tokens. And <laughs> there was this just factions back and forth and saying, mm-hmm. yes, we have, to take, we have to take that back or no, we can't take it back. And there were a lot of questions of like, this proposal was hastily put together. There was not mm-hmm. much context involved. And all mm-hmm. this context was coming in after the fact. And people ended up changing their votes based on more information that was coming together. So here's a great example of where they did not have their shit together when it comes to <laughs> right. what, what goes into putting a proposal together. So it just seems like one guy said, this is unfair. Uh, I vote we take their tokens away. And people are like, oh, what did you say? Okay, yeah, sure. Or, or no, that doesn't make sense. And then it just turned into, wait, 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 let's just slow down for a second and figure out what actually happened and get the story straight after it was put to a vote, Mm -hmm. which is just totally Mm -hmm. messy, regardless of the direction you you think the vote should have gone in. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm hearing the way Yuga Labs is putting this together and they have a really clearly defined structure. And again, whether you agree with it or not, the fact is you have to clearly define what does it take to put a proposal in place? What exactly has to happen for that proposal to pass? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I, I, I generally like the idea of having a lot of information in the proposal because one, it weeds out the people who are just throwing shit on the wall yes. and seeing if it sticks. And then two, it forces you to think through all of the different details. And then it's way clearer to you, the person who's proposing the change, and the people who are receiving it on exactly what you're trying to accomplish, the KPIs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a standard thing in business. So again, not necessarily saying, hey, standard thing in business, you have to, everyone has to do it. But Yuga Labs, it's clear from the people that they have on their board and now the mm-hmm. doxed people that these are definitely people who've come from pretty established corporate backgrounds. And they're seriously leveraging the stuff that they've learned there to run Yuga Labs. But I think there's lots of really good uh, things we're seeing there and that they are truly trying to create an ecosystem here. They're trying to decentralize and progressively decentralize. They recognize that, that there's there's going to be this over time, giving more and more power to the community as this is. And then the foundation is kind of taking that role over in the meantime. So it seems like they're taking the Web3 ethos seriously and leveraging maybe some of the good parts, or at least in their mind, some of the good parts from the traditional Web2 corporate world. It's It's up for people to decide. This is what's great about this environment is it's very transparent. And... Lots of different projects can try this. And this is going to be a very high-profile project to try it. And it's there's going to be lots of things where people are looking to them to say, how did they run this project? How did they structure governance? Did it work? Did it not work? Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. going to take inspiration from that and run their own DAOs or their own, their own communities in this particular way. Um, we have to be careful, careful not to accept a status quo too carefully. Um, and that's, that's the fear always with something like a high-profile project taking a certain route. As you're wondering, like, oh, are people, is just everyone going to do this just because one project did it, one high-profile project did it? But the idea here is that, I mean, from from a standpoint, it seems like they're taking the good bits from the corporate world and the the good bits and the ethos from Web three and trying to combine it. it. Seems like they're they're really trying to combine it. Honestly, um, I want to go back to the the question of privacy here, doxing mm. versus rightfully 
giving people information that maybe other people already have. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, this is a factor that investors take into account on certain projects. Some people are like by default, I don't invest in projects where there's an anonymous, uh, core team because I don't know if there's like a, a, a Sifu situation where this guy just came from a a scam and now just rebranded new wallet, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, how mm-hmm. do you combat against that? How do you maintain privacy, which in a lot of people's eyes is a fundamental right? And I like, I totally abide by that. Like, it's a fundamental right. So how do you maintain this level of privacy while also having a reputation that mm-hmm. can't just be thrown away when you mm-hmm. mess up? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's so many questions there. And again, I don't think there's any one right answer. It's more of a spectrum of people to make their own decision on saying, I believe in privacy. I'm good with having... Um, anonymous teams and taking the risks associated there. Um, and then there's other people who are just saying like, I, I want to know who the core team is and they're only really going to get involved in projects where the core team is doxing themselves. Um, it's, it's, it's really up for people to decide. Um, man, and with the o- ape token utility, I mean, I, I've just been hearing a lot of things from people saying, Oh, this is a scam coin. This is a meme coin, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And maybe right now there's, there's, temporary mimetics and just, just pump and dump type of things. There might be some of that going on, but it sounds like from the ecosystem they're trying to build here, the more utility they're giving this token, I mean, the more practical, the more practical it is. So it's up to see like, how are they, how are they creating these different ecosystems? How are they, um, what's the interoperability like? Um, and we'll see, we'll see based on, and they, they just have a track record of doing so well that they create this whole ecosystem and the ape token can be used in different parts of the ecosystem that increases utility and it becomes less and less like a meme coin. So it's, it's where it's at right now, I think is irrelevant where it's going is it's kind of up to see how these other projects that they're putting together, uh, turn out. And if that utility gets realized, there's so much going on here. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I can, I'm, I would be very surprised if Yuga labs wasn't looking at an open sea, and seeing the direction they took and saying, we don't, we don't want to go down that route. Because even though they're doing this private round and they're, they're built like a traditional company, they're still, again, releasing and, and, and abiding by it seemingly by the Web3 ethos, releasing mm-hmm. a token, creating all these ecosystems, gradually decentralizing. So it's, it's interesting to think, what is going to be the role of Yuga Labs long term? Where's that value going to come from as they increasingly get more and more outside of the picture. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe they're just collecting royalties as being the original minters of these NFTs. I don't know. And maybe that becomes the, the revenue line there. But um, man, there's, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, I know I just touched lightly on all of those different things, but it, for, for people listening, so much to unpack here, so much to, to keep an eye on <laughs> in many different angles. So talk about use cases here. I feel like we're just slowly identifying all these different things that you might build for a Harvard MBA course where they just traditionally like, Hey, this company did this and this is what happened. And you're building (laughs) up this just portfolio of use cases to say, here's how to run a DAO. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's just so much to learn from these. And it's still so early because a lot of the stuff we talked about, it's in the first inning, the first, the first batter of the first inning. Mm -hmm. It's so, Mm -hmm. so early. So keep an eye on all these projects because, man, are there a ton of learning lessons to come from, from projects like this. There are, there are. All right, my friend Alex. So we're going to go into the buzzworthy news, which I think also has some overlap with the philosophy bombshell. So take it away, my friend. Yeah, I, I think it'll take us nicely into the segue of 
what we tip the types of things we typically talk about in the philosophy bombshells. So there was kind of a high profile Time magazine cover piece on Metallic. He was on the cover. Um, so really big just in general to say give visibility to Web3 and you know more specifically the Ethereum ecosystem. But what it seemed like it was is kind of a TLDR into a lot of the stuff that was covered in The Infinite Machine and The Cryptopians, the newest book by Laura Shin. Um, so it, there's the, the main takeaways here are it, it just learning a little bit more about his background. So it's a really nice introduction to that. So if you haven't read those books, great introduction here to say, like, what, what's the background of this guy? Where is he coming from? What's the origin story? Things like that. But there, there were a few main takeaways I wanted to highlight in this, in this particular article. One particular quote, quote here that I'm going to read verbatim, uh, just as Ethereum is designed to be an everything machine, Buterin is an everything thinker, fluent in disciplines ranging from sociological theory to advanced calculus to land tax history. Uh, I promise I didn't know this explicitly before when we were talking about how critical it is to learn more than just Web3 specific mm-hmm. topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I have a friend that I keep meeting up with in different uh, different conferences. Just one, like one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. It's just mind blowing. And he puts these medium posts together comparing uh, physics. I believe he has some kind of physics background and Web three. And it's just insane the level of creativity that you can bring when you're bringing mm. these. Like basically, physics mm-hmm. is understanding um, reality's code. And now you're bringing that into smart contracts and saying, okay, here's reality's code and here's how we could design smart contracts. And there's just amazing the ideas that you can populate from that. And Mm. you can think someone like Vitalik where it's just mind-blowing that he has any time besides just focusing on Ethereum. (laughs) And yet he's well-versed in all these just like like land tax history. That is hilarious. I love that so much. And (laughs) I think it just reiterates um, whatever your opinion of Vitalik. I mean, it's hard to combat that he's an actual genius so mm-hmm. take that with a grain of salt like maybe there's mm-hmm. some things that he's just straight up capable of that we're not but the idea here is that it is so so important to be reading more than just web3 specific topics and if you can take a step back from twitter and get rid of that temporary fomo that you might feel and be like oh my gosh i'm missing out and really gut check yourself and saying what am i truly interested in because you got to start there and saying how could i dive deep. How could I read a traditional book, get off my phone or what articles, what videos could I, could I research to learn about this other topic? And don't even necessarily go into it. I keep saying this. Don't go into it saying, how can I tie this to web three? How can I tie this to web three? Let your subconscious brain make those connections for you. Just get interested in a separate topic. You will be surprised coming back to web three, all the different ideas that you come from. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I definitely feel like I fall into this camp where I dabble in a lot of different things. And I, I kind of wish I would narrow down a little bit and dive a little bit deeper yeah, into some other same. topics. But mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it's amazing saying like, I just created a tie here between two seemingly unrelated topics. And what it helps you do is one, remember and give context to that idea. But then two, helps you think about that idea in different ways that you would not be able to do as if you were just coming at it from the straight Web3 angle. So I think everyone owes it to themselves to say, how can I bring in some other interests of mine into Web3 and gain inspiration? Because Web3 should be like an ecosystem, like ecology. It should be all these things interplaying with each other. It should Mm -hmm. be an ecosystem where there's all this interaction between them rather than all these different silos. 
So take inspiration, take it from, from Vitalik, who's clearly a genius, and he's, he's taking that approach. So a, another uh, advertisement, I think, for that approach there. Um, the, the, the other two main themes I would say from this are around the, the future of crypto and whether you're, um, you're thinking it's, it's bright, it's dark, and then kind of a, a, an offshoot of that, which is crypto as decentralized versus centralized. So part of what uh, the article went into was the origin stories of Ethereum, and it talks about kind of the, <laughs> the, the it's kind of a meme now on just how many co-founders there were of Ethereum. <laughs> and there were just, there were <laughs> factions of ideas in there that were totally antithetical to what we see Ethereum as now. And some of those founders splitting off and, and starting to build other blockchains, other companies with their different ethos. And there's a, a very real risk there where if we're, if we're not very clear, similar to the governance proposal here, if we're really not clear about what it is that we're trying to accomplish, about what it is that we want and the requirements there, it's going to be very easy to get away from that if you haven't clearly defined it. And I think every individual needs to define that for themselves. Like, Why am I in this space? Why am I most interested? What are my core principles? What would I not violate under any circumstances or under most circumstances? And if you can define that clearly for yourself, it's going to be a lot easier to say, okay, if I'm going to be building something, if I'm going to be investing something or whatever else, I'm looking for these core principles. Everything else comes after that. And what, what, what the, the thing that Vitalik is really worried about is he's seeing these, this faction pop up, at least in the Ethereum ecosystem of greed and number go up type of, type of attitude, where they're really mm -hmm. only concerned with how can I make money in this space versus how can we build things that are going to fundamentally change the way the world works? And it's very clear from the article, even in just the books, that Vitalik has never been in this for the money. This, is, this has not been something where he's like, oh, this is a get-rich-quick theme. He has, he has dived deep into this space to say, this is an option. This is a possibility. There's a possibility here, really, to uh, eliminate the middlemen that have caused so much strife in, in history. And if we can like eliminate the human element on the middleman and turn that into code. Well, now you can have people interact with each other peer to peer. And there's so many different use cases you can build on top of that. And I know that just sounds like a, yeah, no brainer. This is the basic thing about web three, but when you, when you get away from it, I mean, s some of these NFT projects even are, are clearly just, let's just release this and see what happens. Let's see if people invest into this thing. And you can tell from some of these projects that people, the main focus here is about making money rather than introducing something fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's a risk for him. And whatever side of the coin that you're on, um, hey, totally fine if you're on that, that number go up type of, type of theme. I know it can be fun. But you, you have to clearly define that for yourself and, and say, like, am I going to be spending my time, putting my time and energy and effort into projects that align with these core principles? So I, I think that's the big first takeaway for me. Um, the other thing with decentralization versus centralization, again, a core aspect that you just have to define for yourself. Do I truly care in decentralization? What are the many ways of decentralizing? Where am I able to compensate? I mean, here, here's a great example, right? With DAOs, <laughs> pure decentralization is everyone voting on every single governance proposal. And we've already shown that just logistically, that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. So, okay, where are the compromises here? Where am I going to start violating my core principles and saying, hey, this is way too much centralization or, 
hey, we're getting down a slippery slope here. How can we make sure that we're building in a way that ensures division of power, uh, separation of power and things like that that are going to ensure a certain level of constant decentralization or you can't get you can't get past a certain level of centralization. Thinking about things in those ways, I, I'm just I'm starting to realize how um, he, he's really getting more into the role of a thought leader versus mm-hmm. just putting his head down in code. I think mm-hmm. that's the epiphany he's really had and probably what what pushed him to do something like this time article where he's mm-hmm. he's clearly very much an uh, an introvert. He he prefers to dive deep into these things, be out of the limelight, but he's seeing how his role can be influential in pushing these ideas of the importance of decentralization, the importance of focusing on projects that are making a meaningful difference in the world and are driving the ethos of web3 mm-hmm. and 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 trying to still <laughs> this is the weird dichotomy here where he doesn't want to come in and strong arm Ethereum and say, nope, we're doing this. We're putting our foot mm-hmm. down because then he's mm-hmm. no better than the systems he's trying to replace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to sit back and say, I'm just going to completely leave it to everyone and I have no opinion. He's starting to say, you know what? I have an opinion here and I'm going to say it. And I'm going to mm-hmm. try and influence people to my line of thinking and say, this is why this is important and, and still abide by the ethos of ultimately it's up to everyone else to make that decision. But here are my opinions. Here's my case. And I, I hope you see the thing, the way, um, the way, th- uh, see things the way I do here. Uh, so really, really interesting piece and a great introduction into just who is Vitalik, uh, before you might dip into something like the infinite machine or the cryptopians. So I don't know, Caroline, what you thought about this and any other takeaways you saw from, uh, from this article. I love all that you've just expressed. I, I think, um, it, it, for again, I, I know sometimes you and I are, we keep coming back to the same sort of themes, but I think it can't be said enough. You, you clearly have someone here and, and the Time Magazine article goes into a little bit of his his childhood, his youth, his, his particular upbringing. You clearly have someone here who, like you said, is a genius, kind of birthed this Ethereum idea um, out, of, out of his mind. And this, this idea was colored uh, by his morals, by his ethics, by his values. And so he's horrified now to see that this tool that he built, that came out of his mind that had like, you know, this tool was dripping with his, like I said, what he, what he cherished, what he valued. And now the tool is being used in a way that is diametrically opposite to what he conceived. Mm-hmm. And so it just goes again and again, something that you and I, Alex, have said very often, the technology is completely neutral. And in this space, we often hear the exact opposite, that if, if you build it, they will come. If it's on-chain, then it's legitimate. If it's this, then it's that. You know, blockchain tra- transparency means that, you know, we're, we're going to be able to revolutionize, et cetera, et cetera. The same sort of like utopian language was present uh, when the internet, when the web first uh, was emergent. Mm-hmm. And look what happened. You know, so it's, yep. it's clear yep. it, we, we keep um, I, I, again, there's actually a quote in this article where he says that he, it's almost like he's, he's, um, yelling into the wind, he's yelling into the abyss. Um, and obviously you and I, I, we can't, we can hardly describe ourselves as doing that. We've only been doing this podcast since October, for goodness sake. But I, I, I feel often in the Dow space, circling in the Dow space, reading, reading everyone's tweets, you know, getting a pulse in everyone's thoughts that we're, we we still are putting far too much weight. Uh, on the technology and not actually looking at the human nature, the human impulses, the value yeah. systems, the, the worldviews that actually um, shape our behavior and our actions. And of course, the technology is sort of a reflexive part of that dialogue. I'm not saying that it's not, 
Um, but there was one quote in particular that I, I thought was really, really um, beautiful. And it speaks to, again, this quote that you pulled out, Alex, in terms of him being an everything thinker. Uh, and it reads, uh, his outspoken advocacy marks a change for a leader who has been slow to find his political voice. Buterin says, one of the decisions I made in 2022 is to try to be more risk-taking and less neutral. I would rather Ethereum offend some people than turn into something that stands for nothing. Uh, then it goes on to talk about the impact of the war. Uh, the, the war is personal to Buterin, who has both Russian and Ukrainian ancestry, which I didn't know. Um, but Buterin was born outside Moscow in 1994 to two computer scientists, Dmitry and Natalia, a few years after the fall of the Soviet Union, monetary and social systems had collapsed. His mother's parents lost their life savings amid rising inflation. Uh, his father, Dmitry, says, growing up in the USSR, I didn't realize most of the stuff I'd been told in school that was good, like communism, was all propaganda. So I wanted Vitalik to question conventions and beliefs and he grew up very independent as a thinker. End quote. I love these two paragraphs, Alex. I don't. I don't. I, I, I love it that you and I kind of focus on the exact same sort of theme. But I, I think that there's a direct connection there. I, the direct connection yeah. with what he witnessed as a childhood, the the rampant inflation, the destruction of the socioeconomic system, um, his parents, you know, telling him, you know, being able to pass down to him the fact that the things that you're taught in school turned out to be propaganda. They inculcated in him the need to be an independent thinker, which is why Vitalik is able to go from field to field to field with equal facility. It, and I, I, so think I think of the butterfly effect there. It, <laughs> it's just exactly. crazy to think of. It is crazy to think of, but I, I mean, make no mistake about it, my friend, when you're, when we talked about this too, I think it was like the second or third episode where we talked about the need to go outside of Web3 to really be able to bring mm -hmm. something new to Web3. It's easier said than done because there is such a thing. There is a psychology of thought where you can become extremely rigid around the, the thinking and the perceptions and the observations that you make. You can become quite married to them. Oh, so yeah. the fact that Vitalik is able to, with equal facility, jump in, consume, imbibe, metabolize fields as disparate as X, Y, and Z, he is an independent thinker. And this is why he is such a powerful force culturally in this Web3 space. And I'm super grateful um, that he's out there and he's, he's speaking out. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think once again, it's a beautiful way to kind of tie around back to the previous discussions that you and I have, uh, have had about how is it that we actually bring something new into the web three space. And yes, it's very important to read outside of web three and crypto and blockchain, but it's also very important to kind of observe how we think, uh, to kind of observe the sort of attachment that we have to certain thoughts even even Web3, I mean, I think we're most guilty of it in Web3, right? So many of us are such maximalists of Web3 that we're mm. not able to truly detach and say, mm, wait a minute, this, this is a valid criticism. This is something that is clearly needs to be uh, addressed. This is a potentially catastrophic you know, a failing of Web3. There, I think there's very, very few people that can be super passionate about Web3 yeah. and still be very objective and detached and say, these are the problems with Web3. And this is that partially facility. Why, mm -hmm. I think that's partially why I like Moxie's response so much yes. is because it introduces yes. this very valid criticism. Yes. And you have to look in the mirror to say, 
are you defensive on this and just dismiss yes. and dismissing it? Or are you, you looking at the arguments and thinking to yourself, oh, this is a good point. How do we overcome this? Or how is this not quite the case and, and making a case there rather than dismissing it? There's absolutely a point there. And I, I think you said it best where if you're just focusing on the technology itself, you are more at risk of missing the whole point. The yes. technology is not the end game. The technology is a tool to getting to an end game. And you have to think through what, what are we trying to accomplish here with this technology in the first place? How are we trying yes. to change um, the human experience? How are we trying to take existing human incentives that are probably not going to change based on human nature? And how do we bake those into these incentive structures that we're using this technology in order to facilitate? That should be the focus. And you can bring in so many different topics, even some that have nothing to do with human beings to just say, how do different organisms work together? How do different physical objects work together? There's just, and the, the more of these subjects that you dive deep into, I think the more you'll see how all these things are connected. It just informs your, your approach and it makes it so much different than just focusing on the technology itself. So to beat a dead horse, yes, I think it brings back this main point that we've been harping on and just the importance here and a great example of someone who's, who's using that approach to huge success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, 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 for one, and I hear it in your voice as well, you know, to Vitalik out there, thank you. Thank you for, for yeah. doing something that innately you, you may, you may shirk, you may not want to do these things. You may not want to be in the spotlight, but I, I absolutely agree that we need you. Uh, we need Vitalik and we need more, more people to actually be uh, looking at the space critically, looking at it with attachment, looking at the underlying values and the worldviews that are shaping our behaviors and our actions. Because uh, the last thing that we want, again, is to have this sort of repeating behavior of utopian mm -hmm. ideals and the, te the technology ultimately being captured by ourselves, by the fact that we, we haven't actually changed the underlying operating system, so to speak. So, the best uh, leaders are the ones who don't seek it out. And I think this is a great e example. Exactly right. Exactly right, my friends. So with that, we are going to close our podcast. Uh, once again, it's been uh, an amazing, invigorating conversation with you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you to the Forefront family. And we hope you take good care of yourself and we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. See you then. Hey, fam. Thanks for listening to the Forefront podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.